Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Is Archbishop Vigano creating a schism? Is he going too far? Well, recently, I should say this, I don't believe Archbishop Vigano is creating a schism. That doesn't mean that I agree with every single position Archbishop Vigano has. But the idea of schism is a different topic. We're going to go into a recent speech that he gave. My uh, friend Stephen Cox at LifeSite News wrote an article sort of going over what was the meat of this speech. It was part of a conference by Dr. Ed Mazza called Is the Pope Catholic? And it has also come out recently that Archbishop Vigano is basically starting a seminary. And his intention is to form traditional priests for service in Italy. And, um, and there is speculation that at some point maybe he might consecrate bishops, etc. Who knows? Um, but obviously people are starting to bring up is this the same as Archbishop Lefebvre? Um, and some people think that's a good thing. Some people think that's a bad thing. Obviously, people fall down on different sides of that issue. But we're going to go over what's actually happening and if there is precedent for what Archbishop Vigano is doing. But first, I'd like to say thank you to the sponsor for this video, Aura et Colora. Aura et Colora is a type of coloring book, but it's not just for small children. In fact, it's actually quite beautiful. And I think sort of young adults or older kids will like this as well. It's really a journey through this concept of saints and martyrs of the Catholic Church. And it's more than just a coloring book. It's a visual prayer, a canvas of devotion, and a personal sanctuary where art and soul meet. Whether as a tranquil retreat or an educational exploration, this book is a testament to the timeless tales of the, of the Church's holy men and women, a colorful ode to the echoes of their sanctity and sacrifice. And you can see here, on the screen, if you take a look, gorgeous silhouette, sort of stained glass looking pictures. Um, inside, you'll find um, artwork of different saints with the descriptions of their lives. It is available through Amazon through Prime. So this could be a stocking stuffer, a last minute gift. Um, I'm really excited to be working with this individual to promote this because I do think it's important for us to promote these good, strong Catholic businesses. And uh, I really hope that people uh, give it a shot. You can find a link for this in the description of this video. Check out Aura et Colora. Uh, it's a wonderful gift with Christmas coming up. And uh, thank you, everyone, for giving this a shot. And I do hope that you um, uh, give this a purchase. So check out the link in the description. Before we continue, last sponsor. This is not really a sponsor, but more of a promotion for the Canadian Martyrs Men's Conference, which is coming up in about two and a half months, actually. And you can find that by clicking the link uh, in the description for this video as well. Canadian Martyrs Men's Conference will take place February 17th. Tickets are $100 Canadian, which is like $70 US, which is a pretty good deal. It's a full day of food, and fun, and fellowship. The keynote speaker is Father Michel Rion of the SSPX. I'll be doing a talk, but despite that, the conference will actually be pretty good. Tim Flanders will be there as well, our good buddy Tim Flanders. And... Uh, the Friday night, February 16th, that's actually at the point where I think we're going to have to get a bigger venue because there was a 40-person meet and greet at a local pub in New Hamburg, Ontario, but I think it might be sold out, so we're going to see what we have to do there. So um, if you're looking to come to that, uh, stay tuned for news on that because the conference is starting to sell pretty fast and the, um, the actual meet and greet might be sold out, but the day is filled with everything you could imagine uh, that you would want at a traditional Catholics men's conference. And... I should say, 
It's the only traditional Catholic men's conference in North America. That's a true fact. There are other men's conferences, but none of them are specifically traditional Catholic men's conferences. So click the link in the description. We're only about an hour, hour and a half from the border. So you can come in through Port Huron. It's about an hour and a half from uh, the Niagara Falls border as well. So it's pretty accessible no matter where you're coming from. And for those who are flying in, some people are uh, the best place to fly in. If you're not going to fly into an American airport, it would probably be to Toronto, which is only about an hour, hour 15 from where the conference is. So it's pretty close. All right, is Archbishop Vigano creating a schism? Well, we're going to look at this article from my friend uh, Stephen Cox at LifeSite News about this idea of what Bishop Vigano is actually saying, and then we're going to make some assessments. So here is the article from Stephen Cox, and it's called, whoops, Archbishop Vigano, false prophet, Bergoglio is guilty of all apostasy. So <laughs> there's some pretty bold claims. So let's just look at some of the more salient points from this. Archbishop Vigano said, I'll make this a little bigger here for everyone to see a little bit better. We are far beyond heresy, His Excellency declared. St. Robert Bellarmine could never have imagined that an emissary of Freemasonry could go so far as to be elected Pope with the purpose of demolishing the church from within, usurping and abusing the very power of the papacy itself against the papacy. Nor could he have imagined that a hypothetical Pope would surpass mere heresy embrace and embrace all-out apostasy. So, couple things to take from there that I think are fascinating. Number one, Bellarmine could never have imagined this scenario. If I'm being honest, that's actually kind of a pretty insightful statement. Often the sort of state of a contest argument will point to statements from Robert Bellarmine where he basically imagines what we would do if there was a papacy where it was as bad as this one. And what would that mean for the actual office itself? And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, a lot of these theological discussions take place in the hypothetical. And Robert Bellarmine was at the point where, if you actually read his arguments on it, they were hypothetical, by the way. He, he said things that were not in line with the way that some state of a contest used Bellarmine. So it's not that simple, really. But nonetheless, uh, I don't know if Bellarmine could have env envisioned, imagined something like this. I think that is worth taking into consideration when assessing Bellarmine's arguments. Um, and the next thing that he said, which I think is, is uh, extremely important, is abusing the very power of the papacy against itself, or the papacy itself against the papacy. Uh, this is actually a pretty insightful statement. There's a book that I recommend everybody reads called I Accuse the Council by Archbishop Lefebvre. It's from Angelus Press. Um, and... What's fascinating in this is that, maybe I have the citation ready, I'm not really sure, but when you actually look into the interventions that Lefebvre and the other conservative Catholic uh, bishops made throughout the council, um, and we owe a lot of thanks to these conservative bishops because there was a lot of stuff being promoted by the sort of liberal bishops that would have been actual errors being taught in the council, and Archbishop Lefebvre and others as part of the Chetus Pat. Pat Cetus Internationalis, Internationalis Patrum, the um, International Group of Conservative Catholic Fathers, um, you know, they were very concerned about this stuff. And a lot of, and for example, in um, Lumen Gentium, when you find this strange ambiguity about collegiality, um, the appendix footnote, which sort of saves the document from being fully heretical, uh, was because of the efforts of these international fathers. So they really did help the church in a lot of ways. A lot of people don't really recognize that about Archbishop Lefebvre's interventions at the council, but he was very important. 
But what's really important as well is one of their objections to what was being presented by the liberal uh, bishops was that the promote the doctrines being considered by the liberal bishops would actually harm the papacy itself. And they were trying to warn Pope Paul VI about this. They were trying to warn Pope Paul that the changes to the understanding of the collegial nature of the bishops with the Pope, that would actually undermine the papacy. So it's very fascinating. People will point to Archbishop Lefebvre as being someone who undermined the papacy. When people say things like that, this is a total misunderstanding of what Archbishop Lefebvre actually did during the council. And in fact, it was his efforts with others who actually saved the primacy of the papacy. Um, and I recommend everybody read this book, I Accuse the Council, because it goes into that in detail. It's a collection of some interventions that Archbishop Lefebvre himself put together, and it's also some that he signed off on that were put forth by another theologian with some commentary as well. But one statement from Paul VI to these interventions was very fascinating. I'm just going to read that to you quick here. So after a series of interventions sent to the Holy Father to try to get him to reconsider things, this is what Pope Paul VI said. He said, we beg you to believe that we are striving to follow the drawing up of the final version of the schema with the object of removing from it everything which would appear not to be in conformity with sound doctrine. So this is about the schema which would become the constitution of the church, Lumen Gentium, in conformity with sound doctrine and of making all legitimate emendations to it. And this is where Pope Paul VI says something very scandalous. He says, we cannot, however, close our eyes to the fact that new problems in the church's life may perhaps arise. So let's read between the lines there for a second. He says, basically saying, trust me, guys, we're not going to do anything that's against teaching of the church, but you never know what's going to come down the pike. That's what he's saying. It's very telling. Pope Paul VI is saying, listen, don't worry. We're going to make sure we make this thing all orthodox, but you never know what the future holds. What does that mean? Does that mean that it could be that they could change it? This is very strange, very strange stuff. But this is just one of many examples. So what does it have to do with Archbishop Vigano? Well, right now people are going to accuse Archbishop Vigano of creating some sort of schism because what he's doing is they will say undermining the papacy, the things he's saying about Pope Francis. And we should say, if we do look at Archbishop Vigano's um, notes from the conference here real quickly, he does say um, uh, that we, d we don't have the ability to say that uh, Pope Francis is not Pope to officially. He says right here, at the same time, he said that we cannot do what we cannot do because we do not have the authority is to officially declare that Jorge Mario Bergoglio is not the Pope. The terrible impasse in which we find ourselves makes hum any human solution possible. So as harsh as Bishop Vigano is being on the actual papacy, on the Pope as an individual Pope, he is saying that in the official sense, we aren't in the position to actually declare that the sede is vacante. The seat is vacant, which I think is important for people to remember, uh, just as a, as, a, as a point of reference there. Um, but the real crux of the matter gets to Archbishop Vigano has embarked on this journey of now basically starting a seminary where he's going to be ordaining priests and who knows, maybe bishops at some point. And that's going to be where, that's going to be where people are going to start crying schism. A couple things to remember. And again, I'm not saying I agree or don't agree with Bishop Vigano's actions, because we're going to look at something from church history in just a second, which shows something very similar. And really, as we're living through this crisis in the church, as Bishop Vigano says, and I agree with him on this point, that we are in an impossible situation. I mean, try as a traditional Catholic, for example, to be doing apologetics 
to try to convert someone to the papacy. You know, somebody who's a lapsed Catholic, or convert to the papacy, convert to Catholicism. Somebody who's a lapsed Catholic, for example, you're trying to get them to come back to church and they're very conservative. And they're saying, what about this Pope? And then they come to this impasse between, well, all these people are telling me that it's disobedient and schismatic to be a traditionalist, but at the same time, I can't do what Pope Francis is saying because this stuff's egregious. I mean, these are real problems that are presenting Catholics with a, a problem that is really impossible to solve in a strictly human sense. And I do write this in my book, SSPX The Defense. Um, Father McGilvery of the SSPX said once on the SSPX podcast that basically, if you're looking for a neat and tidy, perfectly encapsulated uh, explanation for what to do in the crisis, you're not going to find it because there are so many loose ends that we're really in uncharted waters right now. This is why I don't go too hard on even people like uh, Father Altman, or for example, who come to a different conclusion that I would come to, because right now I really don't know what is the perfect answer for what we're going through. And it seems to me like Bishop Vigano was kind of in that position, and he's saying to himself, especially in the case of Italy, Italy is very bad. Uh, traditional Catholicism is, is not very common in Italy. The, the bishops of Italy are the most liberal in the world, or among, amongst the most liberal in the world. And it's a really, it's a real disaster. Um, and so what do you do? Well, Bishop Vigano is, is going to be making priests. And again, you may disagree with Bishop Vigano's assessment of the crisis, but let's just look quickly here at uh, something from church history, which is very fascinating when we take it into account. So here is a selection of the biography of Archbishop Lefebvre. And this is on page, let me see. Uh, this would be, I have the PDF here. This would be page 541. Okay, so this is something that Archbishop Lefebvre was considering before he went ahead and consecrated bishops. And here's the selection, and it says, The argument from history would later come to complete this radical reasoning. The example of St. Eusebius, Bishop of Samosote, spoke for itself. At the time of the Arian crisis, when he returned from exile, he learned that numerous local churches were in need of pastors. So he began to go throughout Syria, Phoenicia, and Palestine, ordaining priests and deacons and consecrating solidly orthodox bishops, even though he had no jurisdiction over these churches. Archbishop Lefebvre read and approved of Dom Grea. Dom Grea was like a Dom Béranger, a, a great commentator, theologian. Dom Grea's commentary. So a couple things to take from there. For one, when he came home from exile, well, if there's a bishop who is in exile, I mean, in a sense, Bishop Vigano has kind of been in exile uh, from what's been happening. He learned that numerous local churches were in need of pastors. So there was a need that the faithful had. The faithful didn't have pastors. So he began to go throughout Syria, Phoenicia, and Palestine, ordaining priests and deacons and consecrating, consecrating, not just ordaining, consecrating solidly orthodox bishops, even though he had no jurisdiction over these churches. And that's cited in the book. You can find it in Histoire Ecclesiastique. Um, anyway, the citations are there. And this is an actual um, citation from Dom Grea making his commentary upon it, and it's referring to the Episcopal power. Um, okay. It says, so if history shows us bishops who took it on themselves to perform the office of doctor, so they believe that there was some reality of having to help heal the church, that, that aspect of their priesthood, if they're in persona Christi, is being a physician, right? A doctor to failing churches. It shows us that the, at the same time, what pressing circumstances dictated the conduct. So in the, in the impression of this traditional theologian, there are circumstances where this could be permissible because of a crisis because of a pressing circumstance that dictated this conduct, made it necessary. To make it legitimate, the need had to be as such as to concern the very existence of religion, 
a situation in which the ministry of particular pastors was entirely destroyed or made ineffectual and where no possible recourse to the Holy See could be hoped for. So let's just read that again. To make it legitimate, the need had to be such as to concern the very existence of religion. And again, this is in these areas. It doesn't necessarily mean the whole church, but where he was. A situation in which the ministry of particular pastors was entirely destroyed, so they could have been kicked out or something, or made an ineffectual, and where no possible recourse to the Holy See could be hoped for. So this is a matter of church history, and we do find that this is St. Eusebius of Samosote. He's not Eusebius the Schismatic, he's St. Eusebius of Samosote, and he consecrated priests and bishops, even though he had no jurisdiction to do so. And he was concerned with the orthodoxy of these bishops and these prelates due to the pressing circumstances that dictated the conduct. What does that tell us? Well, if you're in a position, at least according to church history and according to this a traditional commentary and this great saint of the church, there may be a situation wherein the situation is so bad that the work of the priests or bishops is made ineffectual and they have no recourse to the Holy See. Does that sound like the time we're living in? I think you could make the argument that that does sound like the time we're living in. I mean, is, there, is it possible to have recourse to the Holy See for traditional bishops, even conservative bishops? I mean, think of Bishop Strickland. Recently in France, in the Diocese of Toulon, um, they're finally going to have ordinations again because they basically suspended ordinations in this diocese because there was a bishop very much like a Strickland who they basically said, you just can't ordain priests. And there were traditional seminarians waiting to be ordained and they just weren't going to allow it to happen. And they've put in a liberal bishop to make it more liberal. I mean, in many ways, it's impossible to have recourse to the Holy See, not because you can't reach out to them, but because any communication is ineffectual. And this is what happened with Archbishop Lefebvre. If you read, to the story, read through the story of Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, any, any, legitimate back in, any, any legitimate solution with the Holy See was made impossible. You can read that more in his biography and also a book called Archbishop Lefebvre in, Lefebvre in the Vatican. Get the full story. Don't just go with the blogs on the internet. Get the full story and read that. Get the, both those books. Now, does this mean that I think Archbishop Lefebvre and Bishop Vigano are the same? No, I don't think they're the same. Um, for one, Archbishop Lefebvre started his Society of Apostolic Life of his priests in the legitimate fashion before there was a suppression, which many believe was invalid, myself included, which you can find the details for that in my book. So it wasn't the same where Lefebvre was sort of, uh, I hate to use this term in, an, in a denigrating sense, but something like a rogue bishop who hadn't really had an assignment in a long time you know, he did have an actual job, so to speak. He did do something in the canonical fashion, and then he persisted with conscientious disobedience, which is lawful, by the way. Uh, even the um, constitution on uh, in Pastor Eternus about the infallibility of the Pope, it talks about true obedience to the Pope. It doesn't just say blind obedience or just obedience as such. It talks about true obedience because that's important. Um, Archbishop Lefebvre conscientiously disobeyed for the sake of the good of the faithful, which, again, matches this history of St. Eusebius of Samosote during a time of the Arian crisis. And I think that we're in a position right now where uh, the situation is as bad or worse than the Arian crisis. Um, I'm currently researching for a book I'm writing on modernism. It uh, will be published next year, late next year, or the year after. I'm not exactly sure when we'll get it done. Um, but on um, modernism. And if you look into the writings of the modernists, um, you know, Modernism is much worse than Arianism. Arianism is one heresy that you can really pinpoint and say this point in particular, whereas modernism, um, according to the actual beliefs of the modernists themselves, is much more slippery, and it's intentionally so. You know, some of the modernists 
There's a book you should read called The Murky Waters of Vatican II, a Portuguese name. I can't remember. It's translated into English. And he just basically provides a resource of all these statements of the modernists leading up to the council. And they brag of the fact that uh, because of the slipperiness of their heresy, which St. Pius X called the synthesis of all heresies, because of that slipperiness, they were able to basically work around the condemnations of Pescendi, which Pope Pius X uh, wrote more or less explicitly about the doctrines of El, um, Alfred Loisy and, and, um, and Tyrell, um, the, these one Jesuit and one French priest. And, um, and, and, and their doctrines were basically condemned in that and the associated syllabus of errors of Pius X, Lamentabili Sani. Uh, but the other modernists, they boasted how basically what Pius X had done is he'd shown his hand and condemned particular things. And because modernism is so slippery and it's almost more of a psychological heresy, it's more of a, a defect in philosophical trajectory, which makes it leads ultimately to apostasy, essentially. Um, which if you look at the actual modernists themselves, the original modernists, they basically apostatized. Um, because of that, they were able to avoid condemnation and still continue. And they sort of were sleeping. They were underground until the Second Vatican Council. And we find with Pope Pius XII in his encyclical Humanae Generis, he's talking about neo-modernism in particular. And there's a, a paragraph there that we'll actually read real quickly to show what I'm saying because it illuminates the crisis that we're in right now and, and how it really didn't go away. It was abated for a few years while Pius X was around, but then with the horrors of the First and Second World War, the Communist Revolution and so forth, things got a little bit more hairy, let's say. So let's just read quickly from Pius XII what he said, and then you can ask yourself if you think that's still alive today. And remember, Humana Generis is basically Pius XII's syllabus of errors. It's basically his Pescendi. And he's talking about the doctrines of the neo-modernists, which are condemnable. So here is the encyclical Humanae Generis from Pope Pius XII. And this is paragraph 15, which is the money paragraph. And this encapsulates our whole era right now. And he says, moreover, talking about the neo-modernists, they assert that when Catholic doctrine has been reduced to this condition, a way will be found to satisfy modern needs. Well, let's just stop there for a second. What's the whole point of the spirit of the Second Vatican Council is for modern man. You know, this is just in line with that. That will permit of dogma being expressed also by the concepts of modern philosophy. That means Kant, Hegel, and so forth, and their doctrines were condemned by Leo XIII in his encyclicals, whether of immanentism or idealism or existentialism or any other system. Some more audacious affirm that his canon must be done, that this canon must be done, because they hold that the mysteries of faith are never expressed by truly adequate concepts, but only, only by approximate, ever-changeable notions. This is the evolution of doctrine of the modernists, in which the truth is to some extent expressed, but is necessarily distorted. Wherefore, they do not consider it absurd, but altogether necessary that theology should substitute new concepts in place of the old ones in keeping with the various philosophies, which in the course of time it uses as instruments, so that it should give human expression to divine truths in various ways, which are even somewhat opposed, but still equivalent as they say. They add that the history of dogmas consists in the reporting of the various forms in which revealed truth has been clothed, forms that have succeeded one another in accordance with the different teachings and opinions that have arisen over the course of centuries. So basically, Cole's notes, the modernists, the neo-modernists particularly, which is more dangerous, I think, in some ways than modernism. Modernism was very outright heretical, whereas neo-modernism is a, is a softer type, which still leads to the same consequences in the faithful and in the priests, but it's less, it's more difficult to condemn because it's more slippery. And basically, the idea here is that 
they believe that doctrines should change because you never really can put out these sort of infallible proofs. And this really is the spirit of the age, isn't it? So if Pius XII is saying that this neo-modernist heresy is alive and well, and he's seeing that he should condemn this in the early 1950s, it was either 1950 or 52 when he wrote this encyclical, which is just a decade or a little bit more than a decade before the council. If that's happening at that time, then we know the, the problem is alive and well. So if we're living in this time where neo-modernism has run amok throughout the church, and we do find that recourse to the Holy See is in some ways impossible, uh, and that the ministry of priests and bishops has been made ineffectual, or their practice of religion has basically been destroyed, I mean, that pretty much describes the time we're living in, doesn't it? Now, does that mean I think that I'm all on board or agree with everything Bishop Vigano has ever said about his opinions about things? Well, no, I don't. There's just certain things I wouldn't say that Bishop Vigano says. But I'm also not a prince of the church. I don't have the experience he has. And I don't really know fully what he's seeing. Um, so I can't say Bishop Vigano is going to create some sort of schism. Even if he gets to the point where he's uh, consecrating bishops, if we truly are in a grave crisis in the church, and there is a situation where he believes, like St. Eusebius believed, that it was necessary to consecrate solidly orthodox bishops because of a pressing need that was dictated by the circumstances for the faithful, then in principle, this is not something that I can say is schismatic. Does that mean I am on board with everything? I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just saying that's something to think about. At the same time, do I think this is the same as Archbishop Lefebvre? I don't think it's the exact same. There are similarities, and Archbishop Figano is very fond of Archbishop Lefebvre, and thank you for that, Your Excellency. I did quote him in my book extensively, or not extensively, a couple quotes, I guess. Um, a couple of really good quotes, but not, not that many, I guess. But anyway, um, are they the same? No, they're not the same, but... Is the response of every conscientious man of the church going to be the same? No, it's not. Look at St. Eusebius of Samosote. He was principally worried about Phoenicia, um, the Holy Land area, Syria, and that was what he was worried about. That was his world. That was his whole world, and he couldn't have recourse to the Holy See, so he did what he thought he had to do during a major crisis. These are things to think about. We really are in a position now where if the situation continues to deteriorate, which it seems like it will, there is rumor, there are rumors coming out of Rome that gonna, there's going to be more of a conservative pope. But the thing is, that's even not, that's not out of line with modernism as well. You know, modernism is a long game. It's a marathon. And that there could be sort of two steps forward and one step back. This is completely consistent with the actual actions of the modernists. They have no problem having a Pope Paul VI, a John Paul II, and a Benedict which is sort of two steps forward, and then let's reel it back a little bit with JP2 and Benedict. Were, were they conservative compared to Paul VI? Yes. But were many of their statements and doctrines satisfying to the neo-modernists, or at least acceptable? Yes, they were, because they weren't really traditionalists, were they? And this is why we live in this time where, you know, I say this in the book that I'm writing, you know, there's really no such thing as conservative Catholicism. Conservative Catholicism is neo-modernism. What do I mean by that? Well, Go back and read, the, read this book, I Accuse the Council, because what you have there is, yes, those bishops that were right-leaning, right they called themselves conservatives. We would call them traditionalists today. At that time, uh, that distinction hadn't been made. And what the modernists did as a compromise is they would mix the spirit of humanism and modernism with the traditional doctrines of the church which are antipodal, which means they're opposites. They can't actually mix. They're, 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 antith they're antithesis to each other. They're antithesis, whatever the word is. Antithetical, that's the word. 
And then they would have something sort of in the middle, which they said, well, this is conservative. That's very much a Hegelian concept. And Hegelian philosophy is one of the sort of four tenets, along with Descartes and Hume and um, Kant, of modernism. And Hegel believes that you can mix basically opposites and have some sort of synthesis. You can have thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. But that's really impossible. You can't mix traditional Catholicism, aka Catholicism, with modernism, aka heresy, and get this thing that is sort of a synthesis, aka conservative Catholicism. Conservative Catholicism as such is really a form of neo-modernist Catholicism. This is why when you look into the writings of Pope Benedict, for example, Summorum Pontificum, in many ways it's a very good document, but in the next breath, there are things that are very much comfortable with the modernists. You know, Pope Benedict talks about how we have to say, you know, he says in that paragraph, everybody loves to quote, where what former generations held sacred, we have to say is sacred. Then he goes on to say basically in the next paragraph saying that if you reject the, Novus, the, the old mass out of, or if you reject the new mass out of principle, you don't enjoy full communion with the church, which is a very strange thing because if you flip that on its head, if you reject the old mass out of principle, you don't enjoy full communion with the church. Um, and these are not really how we would understand communion historically. With, with, with communion with the church is you recognize the governance, you recognize and you participate in the sacraments and you hold the faith. Doesn't mean you have to do every single thing that the governance of the church would require of you, but you have to recognize the authority as such. There's really nothing in there about you have to be okay with the two antithetical forms of, of the Roman rite. And this is part of that synthesis we see with Benedict where he's trying to mix the old and the new and get the middle, which is very much something sympathetic or at least acceptable by the neo-modernists. So even if there is a conservative pope coming, all it will do is, it's again, it's two steps forward, one step back. So it feels like you're going back, you're going in a more traditional way, and it does feel relatively traditional, like with Benedict, it felt relatively traditional, but it is really still more progressive than where it was, and it's this false sense of security. So I think that things will continue to get more de degraded within the hierarchy of the church for some time, unless there's some sort of miracle. If there is no divine miracle, it's probably just going to be a, a numbers game. The sort of new springtime will eventually die with the older generation. All that will be left will be some sort of traditional Catholic remnant as far as how this, where the faith is strong. Uh, there'll probably be some sort of de facto schisms, meaning uh, impossibilities of union with one another because of the egregious nature of the, the trajectory of the institutional side of the church and those who will probably have to follow the St. Athanasius types into the desert. I think that's where we are in a way, and I think it's going to be more like that. And I think Bishop Vigano is seeing that, and he's trying to prepare for a situation like that. Is he correct in what he's going to be doing with these priests? I don't know. But is there a sentiment there that is consistent with the traditional theology of the church? There is. So it's more complicated than just crying schism with Bishop Vigano. So I hope that, hope that makes sense. And last thing I'm going to say is, again, the traditional, what Bishop Vigano is saying here is that the papacy is against itself. And this is what, again, read this book, I accuse the council, Archbishop Lefebvre and others, the, the traditional bishops at the council, they were trying to say is, you know, you don't understand, Holy Father, what you're doing will actually harm your office. The traditional Catholic ethos is not antithetical to the papacy. Um, if we could use an analogy, you know, if you have a father and your father has a drinking problem or a temper or something, has some major issue, and you resist your father, um, you actually do that because you love him. Uh, if your father has a major problem and you confront him on it and you won't follow him in this certain direction, you're not saying he doesn't have authority. You're not saying he's not your father. 
you're just, because you respect him and care for him, you can't sort of promote him and facilitate his sin. And that's really the traditional Catholic ethos when it comes to the papacy. So things to keep in mind. As always, ladies and gentlemen, let me know what you think in the comments. Actually, last thing, if you want to um, listen to a, a new traditional Catholic Bible study that I'm putting on my Substack for paid subscribers, you can check the link in the description for that. And uh, that's all. Uh, so as always, let me know what you think in the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.